And now hear God's holy word from Psalm 119. Pay close attention. This is indeed God's holy word. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of Yahweh. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Yahweh. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And then jump over to verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks. Father, we join our voices with the voice of the psalmist today, and we desire to say that we indeed love your law. We love your precepts. We love your word. We love your commandments. Help us to grow more and more, not only to say this with our mouths, but believe it with our hearts and obey it with our hands and our feet. And Father, we pray that you would guide us in this by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In front of many courthouses in the Western world, there stands a statue that we all recognize as Lady Justice, and we recognize her by her three characteristic symbolic features. She's blindfolded, she has a sword on her hip, and in her hand she holds a set of scales. This image of Lady Justice goes all the way back to ancient Rome in the time of Caesar Augustus as a symbol of his just reign. She hasn't always looked the same. She wasn't always blindfolded, um, but she was often seated in early uh, Roman usage. But in in Caesar Augustus' day, Lady Justice was not worshipped formally as a goddess with a temple and a cult, but she was an artistic icon, a personification of justice, similar to the way that we view the Statue of Liberty or maybe even Uncle Sam. Now, Lady Justice has changed over time since the Romans first minted coins with her image on them. Um, In the 1500s, a German sculptor added the blindfold, indicating that justice must be impartial. Justice cannot be given to prejudice. Now, this is good, and this is biblical. God forbids partiality in judgment. In Acts, Peter says, God is no respecter of persons. When uh, Samuel goes to anoint David, Yahweh tells Samuel, I don't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. So godly judgment then requires more than a superficial glance over externals. Godly judgment requires a deeper uh, look. God, God even forbids reverse prejudice. Justice does not allow 
partiality toward any man. Leviticus 19 says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. So says God's law. So biblical justice is blind. Biblical justice is impartial. You might, you might be inclined to give favor or to show favoritism toward the poor, but God's law even forbids that. You can't, you can't do this. And so this is, this points to something true. When you see a blindfolded lady justice, that points to biblical truth. Lady justice also has a sword on her hip. The sword is the symbol of authority that God gave specifically to the state. God didn't give the sword to the family. He didn't give it to the church. But when he established human society, he gave the state the duty, the responsibility to carry out swift and final punishment. After the flood, God expanded man's authority on earth. And God told Noah this. He said, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. There God gives to Noah, he hands over to Noah in his authority as a magistrate. He gives him the authority to use the sword to execute the murderer and to avenge the blood of the innocent with the sword. And we point back to that as the occasion when God gave the sword to the institution of the state. And Paul later references that in Romans 13. So there's biblical truth in this as well. When we see Lady Justice with the sword on her hip, true justice must wield the sword to punish the wicked and to protect the innocent. And then Lady Justice holds a set of scales which are a symbol of equity going all the way back to the Egyptians and to the Greeks. This is an old symbol of equity. Scales represent a fair weighing out of evidence, hearing arguments, thinking wisely and critically about a matter, establishing every matter, listening to witnesses and listening and building a case. Well, the Bible has something to say about this also. No surprise. Proverbs chapter 16 says, honest weights and scales are Yahweh's. All the weights in the bag are his work. In other words, the Lord loves truth and the Lord loves the pursuit of truth and fairness. In order for there to be justice in a society, there must be one lawful standard that is applied across the board to all men. A society cannot be ruled by whim or fancy or or uh, the winds of change, or the zeitgeist, or the popular emotions or feelings, whatever those may be. Pressing your thumb down on one end of the scale or, or using hollow weights on a scale to cheat the system is theft. It's lying, and God forbids it. Proverbs 20 says, Dishonest weights and measures, they are an abomination to the Lord. They're an abomination because they obscure the truth and they pervert justice. So when your law code is a labyrinth of arcane, contradictory statutes which are applied in a perverse and inequitable way and applied in ways that aren't even consistent to their own internal logic, you produce a society that might as well be lawless in all areas except the unimportant ones for which you maintain very strict law codes because only the most obedient are going to follow the very strictest and the most petty codes, and the important things are going to go by the wayside. The scales in the hand of Lady Justice point to something true, 
And that is there must be an equitable way of judging and understanding the truth and pursuing truth. So I recognize that Lady Justice isn't a biblical figure at all. You know, she doesn't show up in the, the Bible. Uh, it's a classical humanist ideal. However, there are many ways she does point to biblical truth. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we as a society actually believed and embraced the principles she points to? It would be an absolutely unbelievable blessing. It would be a great starting point. Because at present, we all live in a very frustrating situation that is crying out for justice grounded in God's law. Now, depending upon your background, you may feel the hair on the back of your neck stand up whenever we talk about God's law. And, and your antennas go up and you're wondering, okay, how, how are we talking about God's law? Can we talk about it in a positive way? Is God's law still applicable in any way? Isn't it, isn't it all over and done with? And, and the reason that we think that way and the reason that our antennas go up when we hear mentions of God's law is because we hardly ever hear teaching on God's law unless it comes wrapped in a dozen qualifications, some, some iteration of this argument. It's okay as a blueprint for morality, but Jesus came to deliver us from all of it, right? And we hold those two thoughts at the same time in our head. It's okay as a blueprint for morality, but Jesus came to deliver us from it. Or often also, God's law, his pure and perfect law, gets all confused and mixed up with the ordinances of the Pharisees. And you come away thinking that God's law was confusing and corrupt and set in opposition to grace not understanding that God's law itself is gracious and it's evidence of his grace and of his covenant. So suffice it to say that Christians are very often suspicious of the usefulness of God's law, at least in modern evangelicalism. So we're living in a day when the world is crying out, literally crying out for order and justice and fairness and equity. We all say we want balanced scales. We want the right use of the sword. We want judgment without prejudice. We desperately then need to recover an understanding of, of precisely what a transgression is. By the way, a transgression is not anything that offends you. A transgression is not anything that makes you uncomfortable. A transgression is, is not something you disagree with necessarily. But we have to recover what a definition, what, what is a sin? What is a crime? What is a transgression? And then also to recover how we establish the facts of a matter. How do we find restitution or how do we bring things back to a place of peace when there has been a transgression? And the truth is that all of that information, all of the formulas, all of these things are in God's law. But the church who has been gifted this inspired law code is largely ignorant of what's in it. It's, it's largely ignorant of how to apply it, even if we do know what's in it. And so this leaves us as Christians and as a society trying to build institutions with no instructions, as if God has left it to us to make it up as we go along. It's like trying to build one of those 1980s entertainment centers. Did you ever get those flat pack big things uh, from Walmart or, you know, a home improvement store? It's like trying to build one of those things without the instructions. You've got, you know, this goes into here and that fits into there. And 
putting that together without even a picture. That's what we're doing. It's like dumping five jigsaw puzzles out on the dining room table at once, throwing away the boxes and trying to build just one puzzle off of just whatever you find. That's, that's what it's like. That's what we're trying to do. If you had a blank sheet and you were going to start a society from nothing, where would you start in, in organizing and bringing order to this to this society? Would you start with your feelings about what is right or what is wrong? Would you start with your opinions? Or would you go to the only uh, uh, clear, definable, consistent law code that has ever been written? And that's what I'm arguing for, that God has given us the structure. He has given us the principles. He's given us the precepts. He's given us the vision of an orderly society. And we have said to that, nah, we'll figure it out on our own. We're good. We'll just go by what we feel. We'll just respond to whatever the world thinks is important right now, and we'll follow their lead. How can this be? How can we be so foolish? Psalm 119 puts our feet on a path to proper appreciation for God's law. The scriptures repeatedly tell us to sing the Psalms. We are to sing the Psalms. All the Psalms are commended for our use. That includes Psalm 119. So when we read in Ephesians and we read in Colossians and we read in the epistle of James to sing the Psalms, that doesn't exclude Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is 176 verses of praise and appreciation for God's law. And now we're going to read all 176 verses and I'll exegete everyone from the Hebrew. No, I'm not going to do that. I just wanted to see if y'all were still awake and paying attention there. No, there, there is in this rich, uh, excellent psalm, 176 verses of praise for God's law. So however the church is to understand and use God's law, and that's a critical conversation that we need to have. How do we use God's law? And I'm going to dip my toes in that just briefly this morning. However we use God's law, our primary orientation towards God's law is thanksgiving. That is our starting place. That's where we begin. We don't approach God's law with suspicion. We don't, we don't begin with killing it with a thousand paper cuts of qualification, but our orientation towards God's law is of deep love and appreciation for God's law. And this psalm calls us to treasure, to long for, to delight in, and to stand in awe of God's law. God's law is light in Psalm 119. It is the agent of purification. It keeps us from wandering. It revives us. It strengthens us. It communicates God's salvation to us. God's law in Psalm 119 is enriching, it is fortifying, it is sweet, it is eternal. And I'm just cherry picking a few of the, of the descriptions from this excellent psalm. Therefore, if you and I are in tune with the Holy Spirit who inspired Psalm 119, then you and I can sing with the psalmist and with the Holy Spirit Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. If we're in tune with the Holy Spirit, we ought to be able to say that and to sing it. According to this psalm, it is out of this deep affection for God's law that order and blessing and completeness comes as men and women in God's world, in God's good creation. We don't typically think of God's law that way, do we? We don't, we, our orientation toward the law is not 
Love. That's not the first thing that comes to your mind when you open the book of Numbers, is it? Oh, how I love God's law, right? That's not our first thought. When you think of your favorite parts of the Bible and the parts of the Bible that you turn to when you're distressed or weary or you need direction or you need wisdom, where do you go? What are your favorite places to go? It's all God's word. It's all inspired. It's all wonderful. But why don't we ever reach for Deuteronomy when our life's a mess? When things are spinning out of control, why don't we roll up our sleeves and say, you know what, it's time to study and understand Leviticus. Why don't we do that? I would wager that for most of us, our experience of reading straight through the Bible peters out around Exodus 20, 21, 22, doesn't it? Why does it become so difficult? I mean, you start the Bible and you think, okay, January 1st, I'm going to read the Bible straight through this year, and you get the creation, and you get the garden, and you get the flood, and you get the the Tower of Babel, and then you get to the patriarchs, you get Moses, and you get the plagues, and then and then through the first half of Exodus, and then you stall when you get to the laws, and then you have Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You have commandments and applications of those commandments through case law. And then and we struggle to find a way ahead if we find it hard plowing. We're not comfortable walking around in and explaining God's law. And yet, Jesus, throughout his ministry, commends God's law and obedience to it. What does Jesus say? Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till all it's fulfilled. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And in many other sayings and acts, Jesus showed full appreciation and obedience to the law of God. And at the same time, he opposed the false, crushing, idolatrous law code of the Pharisees. And let's not confuse those. Let's never confuse God's law with the ordinances of the Pharisees that Jesus is always correcting. So the question for us as 21st century Christians is, Can you join the Lord Jesus in his appreciation for his father's law? Can you join the psalmist in recovering a love for the law of God in our lives, in our homes, in the church, with the prayer that the whole nation, the whole society will be eventually permeated with this love of God's law? Can can we have the expectation that the world is going to submit itself to God if the church hasn't first? Do, can, can we think that the world will ever become lawful and orderly unless the church has first become lawful and orderly and each Christian lives filtering the world through God's word? You see, it's the only way forward. The only way forward is for the church to first step into and develop an affection for God's law. And however long that journey, however long it takes to leaven the society with this same love, it starts with a single step. So I want to give you today several reasons for why Christians must join their voices with the psalmist and say, how I love your law. How can we do this? I'll give you four. I'll give you four reasons so you can keep track and know where I am. Number one, we love God's law because the entire Bible is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and useful in every subject that it addresses. So whether the Bible gives us instruction on marriage 
or the Bible gives us instruction on children or contracts or handling disputes or ordering a lawful society, the Bible can always be trusted. It will never lead you astray. The whole Bible is good and there's no part of it that is irrelevant to our lives. So we aren't New Testament Christians. I grew up saying that when my early days as a pastor, I said, we're a New Testament church and we're a New Testament, New Testament Christian. I don't even remember exactly what I meant by that back then because I, I disavow that. I'm, we're not New Testament Christians. We're whole Bible Christians. And this is a whole Bible church because we believe that the whole Bible is applicable for all of life. The scriptures are the sole, supreme, and unchallengeable standard by which man is to operate in all areas of life, and that includes God's precious law. Therefore, I can say, I love God's law. Secondly, we love God's law because it's the only law that is perfectly in line with the created order. The God who created the world, who created men and women, who formed the family, the God who instituted the state, has given laws for how those things are to work in beauty and glory and honor. Man's laws are always pitting man against man. Man's laws are always interfering in relations between man and man. I've got apples. You've got money. You want my apples. I want your money. That sounds like an easy transaction, doesn't it? But man's laws don't think that it should be that simple. Man's laws are interfering. And if man's laws don't like the transaction, I'm stuck with apples I don't need, and you're stuck with money you would rather spend for apples. Man's laws do that. Man's laws pit liberty against structure. But God's law never does this. God's law never sets these good things at odds because God's laws are covenantal. They're set in environments of relationship based on communion and affection and mutual love and service. That's the second thing. We love God's law because it's in line with his covenantal order for all of creation. He's the one who made the institutions of family, state, and church, and now he has given laws for the way that these things operate in glory and honor and beauty. Thirdly, we love God's law because we love God. And in his law, he has revealed himself and his own moral character by showing us what is most pleasing to him. If I love you, I want to know what you like and what makes you happy. And if your favorite thing in the world is diet raspberry Fanta, when you come to my house in the refrigerator, if at all possible, if it's within my power to provide it, there will be diet raspberry Fanta for you. That's my promise. That's my solemn vow to you. If you like diet raspberry Fanta, because I want to please you. If I love you, I want to please you. And I want to know what makes you happy and what makes you uh, feel joy and what brings you happiness. Now, I love the triune God. He has created me. He has redeemed me. So when he gives me a book that tells me what makes him happy, I want to know it and I want to obey it. I love God's law because I love God. And God shows us in his law what makes him happy. Fourthly, we love God's law for all the ways it has been enhanced and elevated in Christ. Not only do we love the way it was given to Moses, but our king, our savior, our friend Jesus has glorified his father's law. How has he done this? Well, in his sacrificial death, he fulfilled and covered all of the bloody rituals of the old covenant. So Passover, circumcision, animal sacrifices, all pointed forward to the cross. 
they have now been replaced in Jesus so that we don't have the shadows anymore. We have the reality. He poured out his Holy Spirit to give us more power to obey the law. And this is a good place to stop and clarify. If you're thinking in the back of your head, wait a minute, is he teaching some kind of legalism where all you got to do is obey the law and you merit God's favor and you earn your way into heaven? Absolutely not. God forbid. You can't obey God's law in your own power. You can't merit God's favor. Rather, we have received the free gift of salvation. We have received the free gift of redemption in Jesus. We have trusted him to the saving of our souls. Now, having received that blessing, now we go obey, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has sent his spirit to give us the power to obey his commandments. That's why we love God's law is because now we have the ability and the power to obey it. And also his sacrifice has cleansed the world in such a way that death and corruption no longer spreads the way it did in the old world before the resurrection. But now life spreads. Under the old covenant, if you touched an unclean thing, you became unclean. You became cut off from the community until you followed a prescription for making things right, make yourself clean again. But now the world is not defiled, but it's rather being redeemed for all those who are united to the Redeemer. So now we consider those laws of cleanness and hygiene. We look back at them and we say, what does that teach us about corruption? What does that teach us about uh, the, the, the death of the, of the human heart and the human life apart from the cleansing that's found in Christ? We look back at those things and consider that. One more significant change that Jesus has brought about is that uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple uh, was destroyed, that's broken the tie of the covenant to a specific place in a specific building, and it's unleashed covenant keeping to the whole world. The cultural boundaries specific to Israel have been erased, and now all kingdoms are on their way to becoming the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdoms. So, to sum that up, we love the law for the way that Jesus has transformed it and has given us the power to obey it and has changed everything. See, there were many ordinances and rituals in the Old Covenant that were given to Israel in her weakness and her immaturity, which, which revealed the perfect character of God, but those laws and ordinances were given in a context of separation between God and his world. They pointed to a future reconciliation. But now that that reconciliation has been accomplished in Christ, and now on the other side of the resurrection, the, the law of God is studied and obeyed in the context of the restoration of all things in Christ. Now today, we don't ignore God's law thinking we're past that. We don't think, well, that's not useful anymore. But now we're giving the duty of processing all the laws of God through the lens of the cross and through the lens of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and finding their fulfillment in Christ and finding now our duty to obey them in Christ. The New Testament shows us how to do this. For example, it, it, it gets us started. Paul um, points back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And Paul says, that means the church needs to pay her ministers. And then we say, oh, Paul, oh, show your math. <laughs> show, show us how you got there. Deuteronomy says, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. You say that means the church needs to pay your ministers. And you think about it and say, okay, that makes sense. I see the application there. Exodus says, don't plow with an ox and a donkey together. 
Paul says that means you don't enter into intimate covenants with unbelievers. See, there are all manner of laws that we process and we make sense of even if we don't own oxen and donkeys. Even if we would never think of boiling a lamb in his mother's milk or any other kind of milk for that matter because we don't boil lambs. We would never think of doing that, but we meditate on God's law out of love for God's law and we make adjustments in our context. We make adjustments in our circumstances in Christ. We make adjustments filtering and shining God's law through the cross to our context because Jesus has transformed all of the law. He's elevated it. He's glorified it. He has given us the power to obey it in maturity and wisdom. Therefore, we uphold it. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus has distanced himself from the ordinances of the Pharisees, and after Jesus explains what true law-keeping looks like, he tells a parable that, that contrasts the lives of those who obey and the lives of those who don't. And at the end of the, end of the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus says. Listen closely. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. There is the man in that parable who hears and obeys, and who builds his house on the rock. There is the man in that parable who hears and does not obey, and he is like a man who has built his house in the sand. The same rain, the same storms, the same floods come on both men. One house stands, the other falls flat. The one who hears and obeys, the one who, with, the one who hears and obeys is the one who withstands the turmoil. You and I live in a world that is working endlessly to build institutions on sand because we're deliberately, high-handedly refusing to do what God says. We're refusing to hear and obey every word of God. And so families are built on sand. Businesses and communities are built on sand. Lives are built on sand. Now, what can we expect other than collapse when the rain and the winds and the storms and the floods come? What did you expect? other than collapse. Were you expecting anything else? The storms come and they expose the foundation. And that's what we're seeing in our world. That's what we're seeing in our society. The foundations have been exposed. It's all built on sand. Do you, brothers and sisters, want your house to be built on a strong foundation? Do you want your house to be built on a rock? Jesus gives you the answer. How does that happen? You must hear and you must obey everything that God says. So then, stop living by your feelings. Stop taking positions and making decisions based on feelings and commit yourself to loving and obeying God's law. Having heard it, apply it. And we're going to spend the next several weeks working through the Ten Commandments, reminding ourselves we need to do this every few years. I think we need to remember God's law, remember what it says, and we'll look at the applications of that throughout the scriptures and commit ourselves to loving it so we can say with the psalmist, how I love your law. It is my meditation both day 
and night. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that indeed we would be able to echo the voice and the sentiment of the psalmist. Help us to apply your word with wisdom. Give us clarity. Give us your Holy Spirit, we pray, that we might not be led astray by our own thoughts and opinions, but might base everything on the firm foundation of your word. We ask you for your blessing in this. In Jesus' name, amen.